Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. 14th of February, Valentine's Day, also in V4. Uh, my name is Wojciech Przybylski, Kamil Jarończyk is here with me. Uh, we're recording this uh, through our virtual connection as part of our team has now been tested positive. Um, but fingers crossed, we'll get, uh, get through. Uh, especially fingers crossed for Miles, uh, who needs to recover. Uh, but now we move on to our weekly outlook, the topics of this week. Uh, and Camille, I'm asking you here, just uh, a hint at what's what's the big story from the weekly outlook? What should our eyes be on? Yes, um, I, I feel like I say this every week now. Uh, it's such an it's such an interesting outlook because so much is happening in our region. So so many on so many different levels. Um, of course, we have uh, the Ukraine crisis, which is constantly developing. The um, NATO troops on the uh, coming over to the eastern flank. Uh, war uh, war games, uh, supposedly games uh, in Belarus. But uh, something that's really big and happening, in, you know, to. Uh, uh, the uh, to the some uh, to two of the four v four members is the rule of law uh, decision by the ECJ, which is actually going to be coming uh, on the sixteenth. Um, hope uh, hopefully um, they keep on time. Uh, and um, this sixteenth uh, 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 will be the answer of the ECJ to the um, complaints uh, forwarded by Poland and Hungary against the rule of law mechanism, which is stopping uh, the EU fu- uh, EU recovery funds from actually coming over to uh, to the um, uh, to the two countries, um, po- uh, Poland and Hungary. Um, uh, yes, on the sixteenth, in the um, af- after the the decision is released, uh, Commission President uh, von der Leyen will actually be debating in the uh, European Parliament on the rule of law question, what is to be done, because just because the ruling is made doesn't mean that uh, um, that uh, that uh, the decision uh, will be made either by the court. It's still up to the commission what will happen and how things will mo- uh, move forward. Uh, we definitely recommend a piece by Mariana Biro, which is appearing shortly on our website, and then by Pavel Marcic, um, both of whom uh, explain the significance both of the ruling for the whole of EU and particularly for these countries. They explain the uh, the also the the logic of the narrative presented uh, by the governments in defying so far defying the rule of law mechanism, despite it has been accepted during the budget negotiations. Let us remember that both Poland and Hungary were the countries um, opposing and uh, threatening to veto the the budget based on this rule. And now, uh, although this is not uh, formally the process, the Commission has not yet approved uh, the disimbursement of, of funds. Uh, structural funds and the recovery funds to both countries. It is uh, being speculated and hinted by several commissioners that is largely because of unduly uh, process in the judiciary in uh, in the in questioning the the rule of law mechanism as such. So this is really the week for Central Europe and for the two governments. One of which is already in the campaign mode. Viktor Orban. 
uh, is speaking of uh, of, of uh, EU jihad against Hungarian sovereignty, and the other one is about to have uh, a campaign. The 2023 elections uh, will be disastrous for PIS if they would not have the uh, rule of law, uh, I mean EU funds, and that means some rule of law adjustments uh, done. It is going to be also hard for them to sell that they are rule of law um, uh, abiding in terms of EU, while their most of their political communication has been on defying the role of the EU. In all honesty, uh, both governments have contributed greatly, not even to the federation federalization of the European Union, but to the uh, increased uh, competences and powers of the EU institutions over national insti- uh, over national. Uh, spheres of sovereignty. Uh, so the the government in Warsaw and government in Budapest have been doing completely the opposite of what they are preaching uh, because of their failed attempts uh, to uh, secure their autonomy in in the sphere of rule of law. For instance, they have pushed the EU institutions to. Uh, take these competences in their hands mm, and uh, um, give a verdict to which, as we see in Poland this week, already uh, the government is making another attempt to uh, to adjust itself, to, uh, to suspend or to change, to modify the disciplinary chamber in the um, uh, Supreme Court. And uh, the government uh, is uh, now proposing its own amendments to the law next to what was proposed and ignored before by President Duda. Uh, all of that uh, apparently is, is an initiative from the center, um, from the more technocratic part of the government uh, where uh, Mr. Morawiecki has the lead and in opposition to more radical part of the government, which is led by Mr. Jobro, Minister of Justice, the coalition, junior coalition member of uh, Mr. Kaczynski. That, uh, that proceeding, that decision on in the Polish parliament is going to be also a difficult uh, uh, thing to swallow for Viktor Orban, but he's preoccupied with his campaigning uh, in Budapest. Uh, there, there, um, there are other themes of communication in Budapest, uh, largely resting on cultural war, on attacking Brussels, on attacking um, also the uh, the Budapest, the elites of uh, on, on on grounds of um, changing the family model of Hungary and uh, that sort of nonsense, and um, at the same time providing uh, f- rather a, a, a stability of of prices of basic uh, food products and gas, electricity, which. Uh, um, in the times of crisis, in the times of turmoil, on one side Ukraine, on the other side inflation, on the third side uh, gas shortages and gas price increase or energy price increase across the block, across all of Europe, uh, or that's a global phenomenon in fact. These are these are the elements that Viktor Orban using the government uh, potential is um, is 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 finding way to insulate the society from being troubled by those, and that can be rewarded in the upcoming elections with now um, polls uh, indicating a slight advantage of the government uh, over the united opposition. 
but uh, the campaign has only started and uh, let's see how it develops. Uh, we just been in Budapest or uh, where we organized on Friday, the 11th of February uh, debate uh, together with the European Parliament, um, the uh, Paradigm Institute and the political capital with two MPs, one German, one, one Hungarian and uh, colleagues from from the research community discussing in public uh, the uh, the electoral process, the democratic security of of elections, and how to uh, make it sound um, in times exactly of this global turmoil. And this was also noteworthy that OSC mission has started. And the big question, big if for this election observation mission in Hungary is uh, is whether there will be enough observers. To, to staff the mission, to, to actually deliver the results. On the side of the opposition, this, on the side of the opposition, this is um, a very, very sensitive topic as uh, Peter Markizai is, uh, and generally the opposition is accusing the government of uh, malpractice, of um, applying uh, this micro level, uh, micro level, um, uh, the electoral fraud and coercive mechanisms so corrupt mechanisms simply paying for the votes yeah we exactly. have all described in the in the previous uh, text as well exactly i wanted to um, uh, also highlight uh, the text by uh, by edit scoot uh, specifically looking at how the roma are influenced uh, the, uh, who are of course they're discriminated against by the uh, by the government and the government is no friend of the roma but yet they have the elect uh, they do uh, receive the votes uh, from this uh, minority group, uh, the largest minority group in Hungary. Um, uh, fascinating piece uh, and a very good look into why, uh, why um, amongst many other cases, this uh, mission is definitely uh, needed, uh, in my opinion. And in part, in particular, I find this, uh, like many other texts on that we uh, tend to publish, um, something something more than just analysis and the opposition is very often uh, remaining on the on the level of analysis and complain uh, there needs to be an offer for different uh, electoral groups there there needs to be uh, there need to be an answer that could mobilize and could help the opposition or whatever other party also in the government uh, you know, transform the reality and the realm of of problem into a realm of of a chance of that that is indeed missing among the opposition, as the opposition seem to be now also in their political communication, focusing primarily on on the problems on how the government uh, has has created uh, for them an upward battlefield. Um, so they are. Uh, they're already in a complaining mode. That is clearly uh, visible, and uh, you can hear uh, this. And I think it's part of a big problem uh, for the opposition itself that yeah. that they've uh, that instead of uh, moving on, they uh, they keep chatter uh, about about the, the, the challenges that they cannot overcome. No one likes a complainer, huh? <laughs> Correct. So, uh, okay, that's the summary of the week, um, uh, weekly outlook as it presents itself this Monday. There are stories to uh, come forward along the week, so stay tuned uh, for uh, more texts to read and uh, the next uh, the next podcast, as usual, released every week. 
But now on to the interview. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Mireli Ayakas. Uh, she's a Martin Kroll Fellow at Visegrad Insights. She's from Estonia, and she works at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute, where she covers such topics as democratic resilience, disinformation, national security, and cybersecurity. Welcome, Merili. Hello, everyone. So I wanted to sort of discuss a bit um, the previous piece that, that we had published on Visegrad uh, Insight last week. You gave readers some really great insight into how Estonia was able to showcase their, their digital solutions in, in the global arena and how it actually serves as a model where these, quote, small states can actually shape world politics. What we see now is, is we're in an age of cascading crisis. You, you look around, you see that we're in the midst of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic. There's an exponential increase in cybersecurity attacks the current Russia-Ukraine conflict. So we, we know that solutions are needed now more than ever on this digital front, where you can see that just last month, there was a cyber, cyber attack that took down more than a dozen of Ukraine's government websites. Ukrainian officials even claimed that 70 government websites were attacked, replacing the websites with text stating, be afraid and wait for the worst. So the point and the background here is, is that we're looking for answers as how democracies, institutions, and individuals defend themselves in this area. And we look towards Estonia because we think that it actually plays a really important role. So it's a salient issue for, for Estonia, who was basically on the receiving end of a really coordinated hostile cyber campaign in 2007. So given that, could you kind of tell us and start off by telling our listeners a bit what actually was the immediate aftermath of these 2007 attacks uh, that sort of made this turn to digital resilience and, and how does this actually link to present digital solutions that Estonia has to offer the global community? Well, first of all, I've had an interest in because this is such a major part in our daily life and also in the very big question of how we are going to preserve democracy in the 21st century when we have so many global threats undermining it. I'm mostly focused on the legal aspects of the whole cyber attacks that were launched against Estonia in 2007. This whole attack was in a way a wake-up call for the states that we are currently in the era where we do have cyber attacks organized by state actors against another state. Now, Russia has never officially said that they were behind it. They have always denied it. But knowing Russia, it's very hard to imagine that such a big attack against another state would have been organized without approval by the government. All in all, in 2007, uh, after the attack, the state started to pay more attention to cybersphere and look into how it can be regulated by international law. This is especially important for Estonia and for other Eastern European, Central European states because we are small states and small states are very fond of international law and how to use these regulation and norms to protect ourselves. So we can see that NATO conducted an internal assessment of the cybersecurity, which led to the creation of uh, cyber defense policy and the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, which is located in Thailand, 
And at the same time, independent experts and academics published the Thailand Manual on the international law, cyber warfare. It looked into different international laws that could be applied to in the cyber realm and saying that, yes, the states do not have sovereignty over the internet, but they do have sovereignty over components of the internet in their territory, and the state should be held responsible to what is going on in their territory. Another thing that Estonia did in 2010, we created the cyber unit under the Estonian Defense League, which is a volunteer organization aimed at protecting Estonian cyberspace. It brings together state officials, military experts, but also people from private companies. They have training exercises and just, you know, connecting people in order to create this expertise and knowledge that we will need to need to have. Because the whole thing about cyber attacks is that you are trying to protect yourself against the threats that are emerging tomorrow or the day after. Uh, we cannot rely on the knowledge that we had earlier. We have to be look at the future a lot. So this was, a, in a sense, a sort of civic, a more civic response, I would say, to you're essentially taking these larger, bigger security issues and you're kind of combining, let's say, a, the military branch or something along these lines, along with sort of civic individuals, civic organizations, and so forth? I'm not entirely sure if we can say that the Estonian Defense League is civic. It's not part of the military, it's... Uh, but it's sort of a part of a part of the larger defense structure, let's say, right? So the whole thing about the Estonian military is that we have the professional army, and then we have the voluntary defense league, which involves people who are not part of the army, but who want to have a larger responsibility in protecting Estonia. And then we have the reservists, which involved everyone who has done the army service. So this uh, cyber unit was just to show that the defense league is not going to focus only on, you know, drainings on the ground. We are also looking into how to protect ourselves, protect the nation in the cybersphere. Right. And even in this sort of way, providing sort of everyday security, right? So it's not just uh, the infrastructure itself. So this is actually one of the other questions that I wanted to, to ask before we kind of move on to how Estonia was using its platform in the Security Council. What we kind of saw is, is that we're trying, uh, after 2007, you, you can see that, of course, you want to secure the online infrastructure, right? You want this to be resilient from future attacks. But there's this other aspect, obviously, that democracies and are, are basically trying to protect itself against, which is sort of digital aggression, disinformation, certain aspects like this. The question here is, is we know one of the ways to actually do this is to build proper media literacy education. This is in large part something, it's, it's, very, it's a very dense subject, it's a very dense field that's actually filled with a lot of experts and so forth, but the idea there is, is that you have, you try to find ways that ordinary citizens will be able to spot disinformation and understand sort of disinformation, or more generally give them a, a better idea of how to seek out proper sources on the web and so forth. When Estonia comes up, it obviously comes up in, in this respect. I'm kind of wondering in terms of media literacy, in terms of this aspect, how far ahead is Estonia than, than the Central and Eastern European region? 
you know, in terms of combating dif- disinformation, for instance, have you seen this posing any sort of threat to more insecurity around these current conflicts? We see that there's disinformation on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. There was a lot of disinformation on the border crisis. You're not going to like my answer because your question <laughs> implies that Estonia is more ahead. Well, I personally think that all this talk about combating disinformation and improving media literacy Yes, there are some ways how to do it, but I think overall we are looking into a very, very big problem that we don't really have any good ways to solve. And the whole issue is that human beings by their very nature are used to or accustomed to living in a group that's only up to 150 people. If it gets bigger than that, we lose the ability to distinguish between the truth and the misunderstandings and the deception, the lies that people are telling us. And then we get to the internet where we also lose the ability to distinguish between serious claims and irony and satire. And just this whole thing is a mess. Uh, I really like the book from, I think it was Brittany Phillips and Ryan Milner who said that all this disinformation, misinformation, it doesn't matter, it's just pollution. Uh, And we keep on polluting our social media because, uh, yes, the companies are helping the social media platforms are responsible. They are financially incentivized to spread everything that helps them to reach more engagement which usually means something that makes people react in a very emotional way. Coming back to how to combat this formation, I think Estonia has some benefits. Mostly it's due to the fact that less than a million people speak Estonian. So it's a very small language, so it doesn't really make sense to organize any big disinformation campaigns here when you can do it in Poland instead, where you can reach Mm -hmm. so many more people. Um, we also have the benefit that we have a very vibrant media landscape. I think this is very important in Central and Eastern Europe mm-hmm. is that our public broadcasting, it's not a state media. It's very independent, politically neutral, and it reaches a lot of people. Uh, we also have two private media companies who are competing with each other. So a very big difference between, especially with Latvia, probably with Lithuania as well, is that in Estonia, the mainstream media is very, you know, it's, it's still there. People still read the news. People still watch the daily news. Uh, this nine o'clock uh, news, aktual um, that we have in our public broadcasting, nine o'clock in the evening. I'm not saying that the entire country watches it, but a lot of people still do. So we still have some shared understanding of the world that we can see that a lot of Americans don't really have anymore because their media landscape is so fragmented. The barriers between political elite and the so-called regular people have been very low. Uh, Yes, it's partly due to the fact that it's a very small state, but then again, we can see so many other small states where the government is is creating these barriers, that it's not easy to reach your representatives or reach the ministers. Uh, And I think Estonia has successfully avoided that. And in the end, it's just, you know, creating trust in political institutions, creating trust that the government is actually, you know, just... 
regular people who want to actually do good and want to improve Estonia in some way. Now, of course, COVID has created a lot of social rifts uh, in the society, or if not created, it has definitely expanded these rifts. And I'm not sure how we are going to overcome that in the upcoming years. This was incredibly interesting. So you said I wouldn't like the, <laughs> you said I wouldn't like the answer, and that's not true. So it actually, there's so many, there's so many different follow-ups. But I guess you know, one aspect here is is that. A lot of times when we, um, when, when we think of countering disinformation, I think the conception that many sort of see in public life from certain experts, uh, analysts, is essentially big bad um, Kremlin trying to infiltrate, trying to do sort of these cyber attacks and so forth. But you pointed to something which is extremely, um, which is extremely salient. So with Estonia, you sort of have this background there that there is this fundamental there's this fundamental aspect that i wouldn't I, I don't know precisely how to to point to it but there is this sort of gathering around point there is this understanding that um we want to to come together we want to sort of have a, a more secure country there seems to be some fabric of fundamental agreement and i think what's happening in a lot of countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and I think we can say definitely specifically in Poland, there is there is such a, a divide, there's such divisiveness. There is no fundamental point. There are camps where uh, that first step of actually coming together and having the thought in mind that, oh, we do want what's best for, uh, for the state is non-existent. And I think that this is also something that we've seen in the U.S. and something that we've seen, obviously, in the region. And this leads me to this point. You also talk about the fact that there is this sort of, <laughs> you know, the idea that there, uh, most of a nation actually sits down and watches the same news station at 9 p.m. is one of the most foreign things I think that I can hear today. Uh, so that points to it. And I think a lot of times the conception of disinformation is most often state-sponsored misinformation or it's misinformation on the side of, of different camps. I'm not that optimistic as you are. Uh, <laughs> I want to believe that, but I think especially the COVID times have demonstrated that no, we do have a very big part of the nation who thinks that, maybe doesn't think that COVID is a hoax, but thinks that there shouldn't be any restrictions, think that vaccinations is a scam, think that the government is full of people who are, you know, sold out to Brussels or to Washington or to any other foreign power. That's what I mean, that I don't know how we can go go on from the um, the biggest public celebrity that we currently have is uh, Valo Voglait, who is this neo-reactionary Catholic, uh, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't think he even actually has a day job. He's just right. rallying people up <laughs> in the Facebook. Maybe he has a job, I'm not sure. But we can see that he has been getting a huge group of followers, people who are very, very skeptical or not trusting the government. And uh, it's, it's the same question that we have in, in all of the world. We've always had a group of people who are not trusting the state institutions, 
but the social media has made them very visible. So it becomes this very vocal minority. And it has given them a way how to connect with other like-minded people. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you should always trust the state institutions. It's just that for me personally, I'm from the background that I used to work in the media. Now I'm working for the public sector. I've done internships in different ministries. Uh, I represented Estonia in different ways. And I know these people who are working in these institutions, and I know that they are, they are actually keeping Estonia in their hearts. And uh, I don't believe in any kind of conspiracy that will involve getting people, tens or hundreds of people secretly on board of agreeing to you know, do something because it's not possible. But if you're right. not part of the system it's, and you're already untrusting of the, the authorities and um, a lot of these people also tend to be on the older side when it actually made sense during the Soviet times not to trust the authorities because pretty much everybody knew that what Pravda is saying or what our newspapers, Estonian communist newspapers or the institution, the government was saying, it wasn't true. And, um, and a lot of people take that and say that, oh, you know, why should we trust institutions now? Maybe part of the pessimism that you have is what led you <laughs> and Estonia to, to actually respond to these uh, the aftermath of 2007. But I want to take a more optimistic turn. And this was <laughs> the sort of optimism that, that you had in the, in the Visegrad Insight piece that you uh, had published last week. And the question here simply is, is so we know that, that Estonia used its, its platform in the Security Council to sort of advocate for, for digital solutions to cybersecurity. If you could just tell our listeners a bit more optimistically, in this sense, what were those, those solutions? Are they viable throughout uh, the EU and to other Central and Eastern European countries? So the work in the Security Council is uh, a very long-term work. Estonia, I don't want to say that Estonia started something, I think it helped to get some processes along and we are now looking forward to these processes moving on with us participating from the United Nations General Assembly or to the other EU countries. Uh, What we did very concretely is that in last June, uh, Estonia organized a high-level debate on cybersecurity. That was the first time where cybersecurity was an agenda topic by its own in the Security Council. Mm -hmm. And the intention or the aim was to explain the growing risks stemming from malicious activities in cyberspace. Uh, Before that debate, uh, Estonia, together with the UK and the United States, raised the issue of cyber attacks on Georgian government and media websites. And they also organized several unofficial, the ARRI meetings, unofficial meetings, on norms of good state behavior in cyberspace. And this whole thing is, again, the Estonian government's emphasis and ambition to have some kind of international law or just shared understanding, shared norms in actions in cyberspace, also monitoring threats. And uh, our diplomats said that before that, cybersecurity was considered to be one of the Russia topics uh, in the Security Council in a way that Russia felt 
that this is their topic, they want to be responsible for it, they want to be the initiator. And of course, we as the Eastern European countries are not going to really agree with the Russian government's understanding of cybersecurity and threats and how the countries should behave in the cyberspace. So we just wanted to build another narrative or another understanding and say that, no, this is... This is something that concerns all of us. I think the cyberspace is one of those areas that, yes, uh, states can be antagonistic. Um, Estonia and Russia is a very good example. But it's also one of those areas where states can cooperate a lot because in the end, cyberspace is also used by malicious non-state actors. I'm thinking of organized crime. Uh, we can see that all these, especially malware attacks have exponentially grown in the last years and this is something that again concerns all of us and the states need to figure out a better way how to respond to these kind of threats.